August, Derelith. August, Arkham House and the Cthulhu Mythos. This is the first, mm, the first of the month. Will be an audio recreation of the first edition of The Outsider and Others. Uh, the first glimpse uh, the public gets of H.P. Lovecraft's skill as a writer of horror. Just like Bierce, I'm not going to list what's in the episode, so I just hope you enjoy today's surprise. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out the brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every couple of steps. Soft plush uppers, foam footbeds, grip slippers so that you don't fall on your ass when you're skulking around the house at 3 a.m. All right. And let's see, what else do we have? We also have, check out Dave's Corner of the Universe every last Tuesday of the month, part of our monthly Cthulhu Mythos and other weirdness episodes. Or go to his blog at davescorneroftheuniverse.wordpress.com. And yeah, I have to say, check out Dave's Corner of the Universe, all kinds of fun stuff. If you like role-playing games, he just recently made stats for Ambrose Bierce, part of last month's Ambrose Bierce. Yeah, last month's Ambrose Spears month. So yeah, check that out. And also help support the show by buying a shirt, uh, pgttcm.threadless.com. And we've got the cool Sathagua Latina Cha Ratfink-inspired t-shirts that I just made the other day. And the super cool Join a Cult t-shirt that has kind of a hand-drawn Cthulhu with X's over its eye. It's I think you'll dig it. I think you'll dig it. Anyway, so also check out the show's merch table at pgttcm.com. I think it's uh, just labeled shop. Or by donating a few dollars to paypal.me slash pgttcm. Special thanks to all of our guests later this month. And check out whatever they've got going on. If you want to be on pgttcm or Black Clock Audio due to your profession, or hobbies in academics, arts, or literature pertaining to gothic horror, cosmic horror, weird fiction, or anything that we cover on the show, go to pgttcm.com slash contact and talk to me about stuff. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a chapter, a novel, or a whole short story. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, and cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us for our monthly show about the Cthulhu Mythos. What are you talking about? This month it's all about the Cthulhu Mythos. And Arkham uh, House Publications and August Durless. Look for our podcast wherever you find your podcasts. We suggest Podbean or Apple Podcasts. And hey... If you're one of our regular listeners who's not a big Cthulhu Mythos fan, you probably know someone who talks about that Cthulhu guy all the time. And hey, tell them about this month. Or hey, if you've got friends who you want to know more about the Cthulhu Mythos, pass this month on to them. And it's going to be a lot of really good, ep- uh, really good uh, examples of H.P. Lovecraft. So hey, um, we've got that going on. Find us on the web at pgttcm.com and Black Audio, bleh, Black Clock Audio on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Black Clock Audio Tales on YouTube, and we're also People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. So just Google Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, one of those two, you'll find us. All right, check out the website, uh, edited by Daniel Spitzer, produced in Badger Strip Studios in lovely. North Portland, Oregon, USA. The Music of Eric Zan by H.P. Lovecraft I have examined maps of the city with the greatest care, yet have never again found the Rue Rosé. These maps have not been modern maps alone, for I know that names change. I have, on the contrary, delved deeply into all the antiquities of the place, and have personally explored every region of whatever name which could possibly answer to the street I knew as the Rue des A. But despite all I have done, it remains a humiliating fact that I cannot find the house, the street, or even the locality where, during the last months of my impoverished life as a student of metaphysics at the university, I heard the music of Eric Zan. 
That my memory is broken, I do not wonder, for my health, physical and mental, was gravely disturbed throughout the period of my residence in the Rue de and I recall that I took none of my few acquaintances there. But that I cannot find the place again is both singular and perplexing, for it was within a half-hour's walk of the university, and was distinguished by peculiarities which could hardly be forgotten by anyone who had been there. I have never met a person who has seen the Rue de the Rue Nose lay across a dark river bordered by precipitous brick blear-windowed warehouses and spanned by a ponderous bridge of dark stone. It was always shadowy along that river, as if the smoke of neighboring factories shut out the sun perpetually. The river was also odorous with evil stenches which I have never smelled elsewhere and which may someday help me to find it, since I should recognize them at once. Beyond the bridge were narrow cobbled streets with rails, and then came the ascent, at first gradual, but incredibly steep as the Rue de Zay was reached. I have never seen another street as narrow and steep as the Rue de Zay. It was almost a cliff, closed to all vehicles, consisting in several places of flights of steps, and ending at the top in a lofty ivied wall. Its paving was irregular, Sometimes stone slabs, sometimes cobblestones, and sometimes bare earth struggling with greenish-gray vegetation. The houses were tall, peaked-roofed, incredibly old, and crazily leaning backward, forward, and sidewise. Occasionally, an opposite pair, both leaning forward, almost met across the street like an arch, and certainly they kept most of the light from the ground below. There were a few overhead bridges from house to house across the street. The inhabitants of that street impressed me peculiarly. At first I thought it was because they were all silent and reticent, but later decided it was because they were all very old. I do not know how I came to live on such a street, but I was not myself when I moved there. I had been living in many poor places, always evicted for want of money, until at last I came upon that tottering house in the Rue de Zay kept by the paralytic Blandeau. It was the third house from the top of the street, and by far the tallest of them all. My room was on the fifth story, the only inhabited room there, since the house was almost empty. On the night I arrived, I heard strange music from the peaked garret overhead, and the next day asked old Blandeau about it. He told me it was an old German viol player, a strange, dumb man who signed his name as Eric Zahn, and who played evenings in a cheap theater orchestra. Adding that Zan's desire to play in the night after his return from the theater was the reason he had chosen this lofty and isolated garret room, whose single gable window was the only point on the street from which one could look over the terminating wall at the declivity and panorama beyond. Thereafter, I heard Zan every night, and although he kept me awake, I was haunted by the weirdness of his music. Knowing little of the art myself, I was yet certain that none of his harmonies had any relation to music I had heard before and concluded that he was a composer of highly original genius. The longer I listened, the more I was fascinated, until after a week I resolved to make the old man's acquaintance. One night, as he was returning from his work, I intercepted Zan in the hallway and told him that I would like to know him and be with him when he played. He was a small, lean, bent person with shabby clothes, blue eyes, a grotesque, satyr-like face, and nearly bald head and at my first word seemed both angered and frightened. My obvious friendliness, however, finally melted him, and he grudgingly motioned to me to follow him up the dark, creaking, and rickety attic stairs. His room, one of only two in the steeply pitched garret, was on the west side, toward the high wall that formed the upper end of the street. Its size was very great, and seemed the greater because of its extraordinary bareness and neglect. Of furniture, there was only a narrow iron bedstead, a dingy washstand, a small table, a large bookcase, an iron music rack, and three old-fashioned chairs. Sheets of music were piled in disorder about the floor. The walls were of bare boards and had probably never known plaster, whilst the abundance of dust and cobwebs made the place seem more deserted than inhabited. Evidently, Eric world of beauty lay in some far cosmos of the imagination. Motioning me to sit down, the dumb man closed the door, turned the large wooden bolts, and lighted a candle to augment the one he had brought with him. 
He now removed his vial from its moth-eaten covering, and taking it, seated himself in the least uncomfortable of the chairs. He did not employ the music rack, but, offering no choice in playing from memory, enchanted me for over an hour with strains I had never heard before, strains which must have been of his own devising. To describe their exact nature is impossible for one unversed in music. They were a kind of fugue, with recurrent passages of the most captivating quality, but to me were notable for the absence of any of the weird notes I had overheard from my room below on other occasions. Those haunting notes I had remembered, and had often hummed and whistled inaccurately to myself. So when the player at length laid down his bow, I asked him if he would render some of them. As I began my request, the wrinkled, satyr-like face lost the bored placidity it had possessed during the playing, and seemed to show the same curious mixture of anger and fright which I had noticed when first I accosted the old man. For a moment, I was inclined to use persuasion, regarding rather lightly the whims of senility, and even tried to awaken my host's weirder mood by whistling a few of the strains to which I had listened the night before. But I did not pursue this course for more than a moment, for when the dumb musician recognized the whistled air, his face grew suddenly distorted with an expression wholly beyond analysis, and his long, cold, bony right hand reached out to stop my mouth and silence the crude imitation. As he did this, he further demonstrated his eccentricity by casting a startled glance toward the lone curtained window, as if fearful of some intruder. A glance doubly absurd, since the garret stood high and inaccessible above all the adjacent roofs, this window being the only point on the steep street, as the concierge had told me, from which one could see over the wall at the summit. The old man's glance brought Blandot's remark to my mind, and with a certain capriciousness I felt a wish to look out over the wide and dizzying panorama of moonlit roofs and city lights beyond the hilltop which of all the dwellers in the Rue des A, only this crabbed musician could see. I moved toward the window and would have drawn aside the nondescript curtains, when, with a frightened rage even greater than before, the dumb lodger was upon me again, this time motioning with his head toward the door as he nervously strove to drag me thither with both hands. Now thoroughly disgusted with my host, I ordered him to release me and told him I would go at once. His clutch relaxed, and as he saw my disgust and offense, his own anger seemed to subside. He tightened his relaxing grip, but this time in a friendly manner, forcing me into a chair, then with an appearance of wistfulness crossing to the littered table, where he wrote many words with a pencil in the labored French of a foreigner. The note which he finally handed me was an appeal for tolerance and forgiveness, Zan said that he was old, lonely, and afflicted with strange fears and nervous disorders connected with his music and other things. He had enjoyed my listening to his music and wished I would come again and not mind his eccentricities, but he could not play to another his weird harmonies and could not bear hearing them from another, nor could he bear having anything in his room touched by another. He had not known until our hallway conversation that I could overhear his playing in my room and now asked me if I would arrange with Blandeau to take a lower room where I could not hear him in the night. He would, he wrote, defray the difference in rent. As I sat deciphering the execrable French, I felt more lenient toward the old man. He was a victim of physical and nervous suffering, as was I, and my metaphysical studies had taught me kindness. In the silence there came a slight sound from the window. The shutter must have rattled slightly in the wind, and for some reason I started almost as violently as did Eric Zan. So when I had finished reading, I shook my host by the hand and departed as a friend. The next day, Blandeau gave me a more expensive room on the third floor, between the apartments of an aged moneylender and the room of a respectable upholsterer. There was no one on the fourth floor. It was not long before I found that Zan's eagerness for my company was not as great as it had seemed while he was persuading me to move down from the fifth story. He did not ask me to call on him, and when I did call, he appeared uneasy and played listlessly. This was always at night, in the day he slept and would admit no one. My liking for him did not grow, though the attic room and the weird music seemed to hold an odd fascination for me. I had a curious desire to look out of that window over the wall and down the unseen slope at the glittering roofs and spires which must lie outspread there. 
Once, I went up to the garret during theater hours, when Zan was away, but the door was locked. What I did succeed in doing was to overhear the nocturnal playing of the dumb old man. At first, I would tiptoe up to my own fifth floor. Then I grew bold enough to climb the last creaking staircase to the peaked garret. There in the narrow hall, outside the bolted door with the covered keyhole, I often heard sounds which filled me with an indefinable dread, the dread of vague wonder and brooding mystery. It was not that the sounds were hideous, for they were not, but that they held vibrations suggesting nothing on this globe of Earth, and that at certain intervals they assumed a symphonic quality which I could hardly conceive as produced by one player. Certainly, Eryxan was a genius of wild power. As the weeks passed, the playing grew wilder, whilst the old musician acquired an increasing haggardness and furtiveness pitiful to behold. He now refused to admit me at any time, and shunned me whenever we met on the stairs. Then one night as I listened at the door, I heard the shrieking vial swell into a chaotic babble of sound, a pandemonium which would have led me to doubt my own shaking sanity, had there not come from behind that barred portal a piteous proof that the horror was real. The awful, inarticulate cry which only a mute can utter, and which rises only in the moments of the most terrible fear or anguish. I knocked repeatedly at the door, but received no response. Afterward, I waited in the black hallway, shivering with cold and fear, till I heard the poor musician's feeble effort to rise from the floor by the aid of a chair. Believing him just conscious after a fainting fit, I renewed my rapping, at the same time calling out my name reassuringly. I heard Zan stumble to the window and close both shutter and sash, then stumble to the door, which he falteringly unfastened to admit me. This time, his delight at having me present was real, for his distorted face gleamed with relief, while he clutched at my coat as a child clutches at its mother's skirts. Shaking pathetically, the old man forced me into a chair whilst he sank into another, beside which his violin bow lay carelessly on the floor. He sat for some time inactive, nodding oddly, but having a paradoxical suggestion of intense and frightened listening. Subsequently, he seemed to be satisfied, and crossing to a chair by the table, wrote a brief note, handed it to me, and returned to the table, where he began to write rapidly and incessantly. The note implored me in the name of mercy and for the sake of my own curiosity to wait where I was while he prepared a full account in German of all the marvels and terrors which beset him. I waited, and the dumb man's pencil flew. It was perhaps an hour later, while I still waited, and while the old musician's feverishly written sheets still continued to pile up, that I saw Zan start as from the hint of a horrible shock. Unmistakably, he was looking at the curtained window and listening shudderingly. Then I half-fancied I heard a sound myself, though it was not a horrible sound, but rather an exquisitely low and infinitely distant musical note suggesting a player in one of the neighboring houses, or in some abode beyond the lofty wall over which I had never been able to look. Upon Zan the effect was terrible, for, dropping his pencil, suddenly he rose, seized his vial, and commenced to rend the night with the wildest playing I had ever heard from his bow, save when listening at the barred door. It would be useless to describe the playing of Eric Zan on that dreadful night. It was more horrible than anything I had ever overheard because I could now see the expression of his face, and could realize that this time the motive was stark fear. He was trying to make a noise, to ward something off or drown something out. What, I could not imagine, awesome though I felt it must be. The playing grew fantastic, denouce, and hysterical, yet kept to the last the qualities of supreme genius which I knew this strange old man possessed. I recognized the air. It was a wild Hungarian dance popular in the theaters, and I reflected for a moment that this was the first time I had ever heard Zan play the work of another composer. Louder and louder, wilder and wilder, mounted the shrieking and whining of that desperate vial. The player was dripping with an uncanny perspiration and twisted like a monkey, always looking frantically at the curtained window. In his frenzied strains, I could almost see shadowy satyrs and bacchanals dancing and whirling insanely through seething abysses of clouds and smoke and lightning. And then I thought I heard a shriller, steadier note that was not from the vial. A calm, deliberate, purposeful mocking note from far away in the west. 
At this juncture, the shutter began to rattle in a howling night wind, which had sprung up outside as if in answer to the mad playing within. Zan's screaming vial now outdid itself, emitting sounds I had never thought a vial could emit. The shutter rattled more loudly, unfastened, and commenced slamming against the window. Then the glass broke shiveringly under the persistent impacts, and the chill wind rushed in, making the candles sputter and rustling the sheets of paper on the table where Zan had begun to write out his horrible secret. I looked at Zan and saw that he was past conscious observation. His blue eyes were bulging, glassy, and sightless, and the frantic playing had become a blind, mechanical, unrecognizable orgy that no pen could even suggest. A sudden gust, stronger than the others, caught up the manuscript and bore it toward the window. I followed the flying sheets in desperation, but they were gone before I reached the demolished panes. Then I remembered my old wish to gaze from this window, the only window in the Rue Rosé from which one might see the slope beyond the wall and the city outspread beneath. It was very dark, but the city's lights always burned, and I expected to see them there amidst the rain and wind. Yet when I looked from that highest of all gable windows, looked while the candles sputtered and the insane vial howled with the night wind, I saw no city spread below, and no friendly lights gleamed from remembered streets, but only the blackness of space illimitable, unimagined space alive with motion and music, and having no semblance of anything on earth. And as I stood there looking in terror, the wind blew out both the candles in that ancient peaked garret, leaving me in savage and impenetrable darkness with chaos and pandemonium before me, and the demon madness of that night-bang vial behind me. I staggered back in the dark, without the means of striking a light, crashing against the table, overturning a chair, and finally groping my way to the place where the blackness screamed with shocking music. To save myself and Eric Zan, I could at least try, whatever the powers opposed to me. Once, I thought some chill thing brushed me, and I screamed, but my scream could not be heard above that hideous vial. Suddenly, out of the blackness, that madly sawing bow struck me, and I knew I was close to the player. I felt a head, touched the back of Zan's chair, and then found and shook his shoulder in an effort to bring him to his senses. He did not respond, and still the vial shrieked on without slackening. I moved my hand to his head, whose mechanical nodding I was able to stop, and shouted in his ear that we must both flee from the unknown things of the night. But he neither answered me, nor abated the frenzy of his unutterable music, while all through the garret strange currents of wind seemed to dance in the darkness and babble. When my hands touched his ear, I shuddered, though I knew not why, knew not why till I felt the still face, the ice-cold, stiffened, unbreathing face whose glassy eyes bulged uselessly into the void. And then, by some miracle, finding the door and the large wooden bolt, I plunged wildly away from that glassy-eyed thing in the dark, and from the ghoulish howling of that accursed vial, whose fury increased even as I plunged, leaping, floating, flying down those endless stairs through the dark house racing mindlessly out into the narrow, steep, and ancient street of steps and tottering houses, clattering down steps and over cobbles to the lower streets and the putrid, canyon-walled river, panting across the great dark bridge to the broader, healthier streets and boulevards we know. All these are terrible impressions that linger with me, and I recall that there was no wind, and that the moon was out, and that all the lights of the city twinkled, Despite my most careful searches and investigations, I have never since been able to find the Rue de But I am not wholly sorry, either for this or for the lost and undreamable abysses of the closely written sheets which alone could have explained the music of Eric Zan. Hey everyone, thank you again for listening to the show. We're not done, we've got more Lovecraft coming up, but just a reminder to... Rate, review, and subscribe if you're enjoying the show. If you have any suggestions, you can contact me on Facebook at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos and Black Clock Audio Tales. So, yeah, if you have any suggestions, anything you want to hear on the show, you want to read something, you want to be a guest on the show, hey, are you in Portland and want to be a guest on Welcome to Portland, sit in the basement and uh, drink beer and eat charcuterie and uh, talk about yourself? Hey, I'm down for it. Go to pgttcm.com and check out Welcome to Portland. All right, back to the show. He. I saw him on a sleepless night when I was walking desperately to save my soul and my vision. My coming to New York had been a mistake. 
For whereas I have looked for poignant wonder and inspiration in the teeming labyrinths of ancient streets that twist endlessly from forgotten courts and squares and waterfronts to courts and squares and waterfronts equally forgotten, and in the cyclopean modern towers and pinnacles that rise blackly Babylonian under waning moons, I had found instead only a sense of horror and oppression which threatened to master, paralyze, and annihilate me. The disillusion had been gradual. Coming for the first time upon the town, I had seen it in the sunset from a bridge, majestic above its waters, its incredible peaks and pyramids rising flower-like and delicate from pools of violet mist to play with the flaming golden clouds and the first stars of evening. Then it had lighted up window by window above the shimmering tides where lanterns nodded and gilded and deep horns bayed weird harmonies, and itself became a starry firmament of dream, redolent of fairy music, and one with the marvels of Caucasus and Samarkand and El Dorado and all glorious and half-fabulous cities. Shortly afterward, I was taken through those antique ways so dear to my fancy, narrow, curving alleys and passages where rows of red Georgian brick blinked with small-paned dormers above pillared doorways that had looked on gilded sedans and paneled coaches. And in the first flush of realization of these long-wished things, I thought I had indeed achieved such treasures as would make me, in time, a poet. But success and happiness were not to be. Garish daylight showed only squalor and alienage, and the noxious elephantiasis of climbing, spreading stone, where the moon had hinted of loveliness and elder magic. And the throngs of people that seethed through the flume-like streets were squat, swarthy strangers with hardened faces and narrow eyes, shrewd strangers without dreams and without kinship to the scenes about them, who could never mean aught to a blue-eyed man of the old folk with a love of fair green lanes and white New England village steeples in his heart. So instead of the poems I had hoped for, there came only a shuddering blankness and ineffable loneliness. And I saw at last a fearful truth which no one had ever dared to breathe before. The unwhisperable secret of secrets. The fact that this city of stone and strider is not a sentient perpetuation of old New York, as London is of old London and Paris of old Paris, but that it is in fact quite dead. Its sprawling body imperfectly embalmed and infested with queer animate things which have nothing to do with it as it was in life. Upon making this discovery, I ceased to sleep comfortably, though something of resigned tranquility came back as I gradually formed the habit of keeping off the streets by day and venturing abroad only at night, when darkness calls forth what little of the past still hovers wraith-like about, and old white doorways remember the stalwart forms that once passed through them. With this mode of relief, I even wrote a few poems and still refrained from going home to my people, lest I seemed to crawl back ignobly in defeat. Then, on a sleepless night's walk, I met the man. It was in a grotesque, hidden courtyard of the Greenwich section, for there in my ignorance I had settled, having heard of the place as the natural home of poets and artists. The archaic lanes and houses and unexpected bits of square and court had indeed delighted me, and when I found the poets and artists to be loud-voiced pretenders whose quaintness is tinsel and whose lives are denial of all that pure beauty which is poetry and art, I stayed on for love of these venerable things. I fancied them as they were in their prime, when Greenwich was a placid village, not yet engulfed by the town. And in the hours before dawn, when all the revelers had slunk away, I used to wander alone among their cryptical windings and brood upon the curious arcana which generations must have deposited there. This kept my soul alive, and gave me a few of those dreams and visions for which the poet far within me cried out. The man came upon me at about two one cloudy August morning, as I was threading a series of detached courtyards, now accessible only through the unlighted hallways of intervening buildings, but once forming parts of a continuous network of picturesque alleys. I had heard of them by vague rumor, and realized that they could not be upon any map of today. 
but the fact that they were forgotten only endeared them to me, so that I had sought them with twice my usual eagerness. Now that I had found them, my eagerness was again redoubled, for something in their arrangement dimly hinted that they might be only a few of many such, with dark, dumb counterparts wedged obscurely betwixt high blank walls and deserted rear tenements, or lurking lamplessly behind archways, unbetrayed by hordes of the foreign-speaking, or guarded by furtive and uncommunicative artists whose practices do not invite publicity or the light of day. He spoke to me without invitation, noting my mood and glances as I studied certain knockered doorways above iron-railed steps, the pallid glow of traceried transoms feebly lighting my face. His own face was in shadow, and he wore a wide-brimmed hat which somehow blended perfectly with the out-of-date cloak he affected. But I was subtly disquieted even before he addressed me. His form was very slight, thin almost to cadaverousness, and his voice proved phenomenally soft and hollow, though not particularly deep. He had, he said, noticed me several times at my wanderings, and inferred that I resembled him in loving the vestiges of former years. Would I not like the guidance of one long practiced in these explorations, and possessed of local information profoundly deeper than any which an obvious newcomer could possibly have gained? As he spoke, I caught a glimpse of his face in the yellow beam from a solitary attic window. It was a noble, even a handsome, elderly countenance, and bore the marks of a lineage and refinement unusual for the age and place. Yet some quality about it disturbed me almost as much as its features pleased me. Perhaps it was too white, or too expressionless, or too much out of keeping with the locality to make me feel easy or comfortable. Nevertheless, I followed him. For in those dreary days, my quest for antique beauty and mystery was all that I had to keep my soul alive, and I reckoned it a rare favor of fate to fall in with one whose kindred seekings seemed to have penetrated so much farther than mine. Something in the night constrained the cloaked man to silence, and for a long hour he led me forward without needless words, making only the briefest of comments concerning ancient names and dates and changes, and directing my progress very largely by gestures as we squeezed through interstices, tiptoed through corridors, clambered over brick walls, and once crawled on hands and knees through a low, arched passage of stone, whose immense length and tortuous twistings effaced at last every hint of geographical location I had managed to preserve. The things we saw were very old and marvelous, or at least they seemed so in the few straggling rays of light by which I viewed them, and I shall never forget the tottering ionic columns and fluted pilasters, and urn-headed iron fence posts, and flaring lintelled windows, and decorative fanlights that appeared to grow quainter and stranger the deeper we advanced into this inexhaustible maze of unknown antiquity. We met no person, and as time passed, the lighted windows became fewer and fewer. The streetlights we first encountered had been of oil, and of the ancient lozenge pattern. Later, I noticed some with candles. And at last, after traversing a horrible unlighted court where my guide had to lead with his gloved hand through total blackness to a narrow wooden gate in a high wall, we came upon a fragment of alley lit only by lanterns in front of every seventh house. Unbelievably, colonial tin lanterns with conical tops and holes punched in the sides. This alley led steeply uphill, more steeply than I thought possible in this part of New York and the upper end was blocked squarely by the ivy-clad wall of a private estate, beyond which I could see a pale cupola and the tops of trees waving against a vague lightness in the sky. In this wall was a small, low-arched gate of nail-studded black oak, which the man proceeded to unlock with a ponderous key. Leading me within, he steered a course in utter blackness over what seemed to be a gravel path and finally up a flight of stone steps to the door of the house, which he unlocked and opened for me. We entered, and as we did so, I grew faint from a reek of infinite mustiness which welled out to meet us, and which must have been the fruit of unwholesome centuries of decay. My host appeared not to notice this, and in courtesy I kept silent as he piloted me up a curving stairway, across a hall, and into a room whose door I heard him lock behind us. 
Then I saw him pull the curtains of the three small paned windows that barely showed themselves against the lightening sky. After which, he crossed to the mantel, struck flint and steel, lighted two candles of a candelabrum of twelve sconces, and made a gesture enjoining soft-toned speech. In this feeble radiance, I saw that we were in a spacious, well-furnished, and paneled library, dating from the first quarter of the 18th century, with splendid doorway pediments, a delightful Doric cornice, and a magnificently carved overmantel with scroll and urn top. Above the crowded bookshelves at intervals along the walls were well-wrought family portraits, all tarnished to an enigmatical dimness and bearing the unmistakable likeness to the man who now motioned me to a chair beside the graceful Chippendale table. Before seating himself across the table from me, my host paused for a moment, as if in embarrassment, then, tardily removing his gloves, wide-brimmed hat, and cloak, stood theatrically revealed in full mid-Georgian costume, from cued hair and neck ruffles to knee-breeches, silk hose, and the buckled shoes I had not previously noticed. Now slowly sinking into a lyre-backed chair, he commenced to eye me intently. Without his hat, he took on an aspect of extreme age, which was scarcely visible before, and I wondered if this unperceived mark of singular longevity were not one of the sources of my original disquiet. When he spoke at length, his soft, hollow, and carefully muffled voice not infrequently quavered, and now and then I had great difficulty in following him as I listened with a thrill of amazement and half-disavowed alarm which grew each instant. You behold, sir, my host began, a man of very eccentrical habits, for whose costume no apology need be offered to one with your wit and inclinations. Reflecting upon better times, I have not scrupled to ascertain their ways and adopt their dress and manners, an indulgence which offends none if practiced without ostentation. It hath been my good fortune to retain the rural seat of my ancestors, swallowed though it was by two towns, first Greenwich, which built up hither after 1800, then New York, which joined on near 1830. There were many reasons for the close keeping of this place in my family, and I have not been remiss in discharging such obligations. The squire who succeeded to it in 1768 studied sartan arts and made sartan discoveries, all connected with influences residing in this particular plot of ground and eminently deserving of the strongest guarding. Some curious effects of these arts and discoveries I now purpose to show you under the strictest secrecy, and I believe I may rely on my judgment of men enough to have no distrust of either your interest or your fidelity. He paused, but I could only nod my head. I have said that I was alarmed, yet to my soul nothing was more deadly than the material daylight world of New York, and whether this man were a harmless eccentric or a wielder of dangerous arts, I had no choice save to follow him and slake my sense of wonder on whatever he might have to offer. So I listened. To my ancestor, he softly continued, there appeared to reside some very remarkable qualities in the will of mankind, qualities having a little suspected dominance not only over the acts of oneself and of others, but over every variety of force and substance in nature, and over many elements and dimensions deemed more universal than nature herself. May I say that he flouted the sanctity of things as great as space and time, and that he put to strange uses the rights of certain half-breed red Indians once encamped upon this hill. These Indians showed collar when the place was built, and were plaguy pestilent in asking to visit the grounds at the full of the moon. For years they stole over the wall each month when they could, and by stealth performed certain acts. Then, in 68, the new squire catched them at their doings and stood still at what he saw. Thereafter, he bargained with them and exchanged the free access of his grounds for the exact inwardness of what they did, learning that their grandfathers got part of their custom from red ancestors 
and part from an old Dutchman in the time of the state's general. And pox on him, I'm afeard the squire must have solved a monstrous bad run, whether or not by intent. For a week after he learnt the secret, he was the only man living that knew it. You, sir, are the first outsider to be told there is a secret. And split me if I'd have risked tampering that much with the powers, had ye not been so hot after bygone things. I shuddered as the man grew colloquial, and with familiar speech of another day. He went on. But you must know, sir, that what the squire got from those mongrel salvages was but a small part of the learning he came to have. He had not been at Oxford for nothing, nor talked to no account with an ancient chemist and astrologer in Paris. He was in fine made sensible that all the world is but the smoke of our intellects, past the bidding of the vulgar, but by the wise to be puffed out and drawn in like any cloud of prime Virginia tobacco. What we want, we may make about us, and what we don't want, we may sweep away. I won't say that all this is wholly true in body, but is sufficient true to furnish a very pretty spectacle now and then. You, I conceive, would be tickled by a better sight of certain other years than your fancy affords you. So be pleased to hold back any fright at what I design to show. Come to the window and be quiet. My host now took my hand to draw me to one of the two windows on the long side of the malodorous room, and at the first touch of his ungloved fingers, I turned cold. His flesh, though dry and firm, was of the quality of ice, and I almost shrank away from his pulling. But again I thought of the emptiness and horror of reality, and boldly prepared to follow whithersoever I might be led. Once at the window, the man drew apart the yellow silk curtains and directed my stare into the blackness outside. For a moment, I saw nothing save a myriad of tiny dancing lights far, far before me. Then, as if in response to an insidious motion of my host's hand, a flash of heat lightning played over the scene, and I looked out upon a sea of luxuriant foliage, foliage unpolluted, and not the sea of roofs to be expected by any normal mind. On my right, the Hudson glittered wickedly, and in the distance ahead, I saw the unhealthy shimmer of a vast salt marsh constellated with nervous fireflies. The flash died, and an evil smile illumined the waxy face of the aged necromancer. That was before my time, before the new squire's time. Pray let us try again. I was faint even fainter than the hateful modernity of that accursed city had made me. Good God, I whispered. Can you do that for any time? And as he nodded and bared the black stumps of what had once been yellow fangs, I clutched up the curtains to prevent myself from falling. But he steadied me with that terrible ice-cold claw and once more made his insidious gesture. Again the lightning flashed but this time upon a scene not wholly strange. It was Greenwich, the Greenwich that used to be, with here and there a roof or row of houses as we see it now, yet with lovely green lanes and fields and bits of grassy common. The marsh still glittered beyond, but in the farther distance I saw the steeples of what was then all of New York, Trinity and St. Paul's and the Brick Church dominating their sisters, and a faint haze of wood smoke hovering over the hole. I breathed hard, but not so much from the sight itself as from the possibilities my imagination terrifiedly conjured up. Can you, dare you, go far? I spoke with awe, and I think he shared it for a second, but the evil grin returned. Far? What I have seen would blast ye to a mad statue of stone. Back, back, forward, forward, look, ye puling lackwit. And as he snarled the phrase under his breath, he gestured anew, bringing to the sky a flash more blinding than either which had come before. For full three seconds, 
I could glimpse that pandemoniac sight, and in those seconds I saw a vista which will ever afterward torment me in dreams. I saw the heavens verminous with strange flying things, and beneath them a hellish black city of giant stone terraces with impious pyramids flung savagely to the moon and devil lights burning from unnumbered windows. And swarming loathsomely on aerial galleries, I saw the yellow, squint-eyed people of that city, robed horribly in orange and red, and dancing insanely to the pounding of fevered kettle drums, the clatter of obscene crotola, and the maniacal moaning of muted horns whose ceaseless dirges rose and fell undulantly like the waves of an unhallowed ocean of bitumen. I saw this vista, I say, and heard, as with the mind's ear, the blasphemous Dom Daniel of cacophony which accompanied it. It was the shrieking fulfillment of all the horror which that corpse city had ever stirred in my soul, and forgetting every injunction to silence, I screamed and screamed and screamed as my nerves gave way and the walls quivered about me. Then, as the flash subsided, I saw that my host was trembling too, a look of shocking fear half blotting from his face the serpent distortion of rage which my screams had excited. He tottered, clutched at the curtains as I had done before, and wriggled his head wildly like a hunted animal. God knows he had cause, for as the echoes of my screaming died away, there came another sound, so hellishly suggestive, that only numbed emotion kept me sane and conscious. It was the steady, stealthy creaking of the stairs beyond the locked door, as with the ascent of a barefoot or skin-shod horde. And at last, the cautious, purposeful rattling of the brass latch that glowed in the feeble candlelight. The old man clawed and spat at me through the moldy air and barked things in his throat as he swayed with the yellow curtain he clutched. The full moon? Damn ye! Damn ye! Ye yelping dog, ye call them! And they've come for me! Moccasin feet, dead men, gad sink ye, ye red devils, but I poisoned no rum of yours, and I kept your pox-rotted magic safe. Ye swilled yourselves sick, curse ye, and ye must needs blame the squire. Let go, you, unhand that latch, I've naught for ye here. At this point, three slow and very deliberate raps shook the panels of the door, and a white foam gathered at the mouth of the frantic magician. His fright, turning to steely despair, left room for a resurgence of his rage against me, and he staggered a step toward the table on whose edge I was steadying myself. The curtains, still clutched in his right hand as his left clawed out at me, grew taut and finally crashed down from their lofty fastenings, admitting to the room a flood of that full moonlight which the brightening of the sky had presaged. In those greenish beams, the candles paled and a new semblance of decay spread over the musk-reeking room with its wormy paneling, sagging floor, battered mantle, rickety furniture, and ragged draperies. It spread over the old man, too, whether from the same source or because of his fear and vehemence, and I saw him shrivel and blacken as he lurched near and strove to rend me with vulturine talons. Only his eyes stayed whole and they glared with a propulsive, dilated incandescence which grew as the face around them charred and dwindled. The rapping was now repeated with greater insistence, and this time bore a hint of metal. The black thing facing me had become only a head with eyes, impotently trying to wriggle across the sinking floor in my direction, and occasionally emitting feeble little spits of immortal malice. Now... Swift and splintering blows assailed the sickly panels, and I saw the gleam of a tomahawk as it cleft the rending wood. I did not move, for I could not, but watched dazedly as the door fell in pieces to admit a colossal, shapeless influx of inky substance starred with shining, malevolent eyes. It poured thickly like a flood of oil bursting a rotten bulkhead, overturned a chair as it spread, and finally flowed under the table and across the room to where the blackened head with the eyes still glared at me. Around that head it closed, totally swallowing it up, and in another moment it had begun to recede, bearing away its invisible burden without touching me, 
and flowing again out of that black doorway and down the unseen stairs, which creaked as before, though in reverse order. Then the floor gave way at last, and I slid graspingly down into the nighted chamber below, choking with cobwebs and half swooning with terror. The green moon, shining through broken windows, showed me the hall door half open, and as I rose from the plaster-strown floor and twisted myself free from the sagged ceiling, I saw sweep past it an awful torrent of blackness with scores of baleful eyes glowing in it. It was seeking the door to the cellar, and when it found it, it vanished therein. I now felt the floor of this lower room giving as that of the upper chamber had done, and once a crashing above had been followed by the fall past the west window of something which must have been the cupola. Now liberated for the instant from the wreckage, I rushed through the hall to the front door, and finding myself unable to open it, seized a chair and broke a window, climbing frenziedly out upon the unkempt lawn where moonlight danced over yard-high grass and weeds. The wall was high, and all the gates were locked, but moving a pile of boxes in a corner, I managed to gain the top and cling to the great stone urn set there. About me, in my exhaustion, I could see only strange walls and windows and old gambrel roofs. The steep street of my approach was nowhere visible, and the little I did see succumbed rapidly to a mist that rolled in from the river despite the glaring moonlight. Suddenly, the urn to which I clung began to tremble, as if sharing my own lethal dizziness, and in another instant my body was plunging downward to I knew not what fate. The man who found me said that I must have crawled a long way despite my broken bones, for a trail of blood stretched off as far as he dared look. The gathering rain soon effaced this link with the scene of my ordeal, and reports could state no more than that I had appeared from a place unknown at the entrance of a little black court off Perry Street. I never sought to return to those tenebrous labyrinths, nor would I direct any sane man thither if I could. Of who or what that ancient creature was... I have no idea, but I repeat that the city is dead and full of unsuspected horrors. Whither he has gone, I do not know. But I have gone home to the pure New England lanes up which fragrant sea winds sweep at evening. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the whole episode, and I hope you all are having a great day, a great commute, a great whatever you're doing. I hope you make your flights on time. I hope you get to your next destination. I hope you have an awesome day at work. I hope your yard work all gets done. Thank you so much for listening. Share the show with your friends. Let everyone know about it. If you like the show, give us five stars wherever you listen to and rate podcasts. Tell your friends about it. And have yourselves a wonderful day.